Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Bob Wintermute, and you're listening to the New Books and Military History channel of the New Books Network podcast. As we close in on the 160th anniversary of the opening of the American Civil War, and later in this decade, the 150th anniversary of the end of Reconstruction, the legacies of these events continue to shake our perceptions of citizenship, civic identity, higher morality, and the meanings of our history. Witness the ongoing debates over publicly displayed statues and plaques dedicated to Confederate veterans and the true meaning of these artifacts, or the strident discourse over unfulfilled promises of equal treatment and just recompense for centuries of slavery and, after the collapse of Reconstruction, the violent legacy of Jim Crow. Our guest today is uniquely positioned to speak with some authority on these issues and their links to how military history continues to be taught and created in the United States today. I first interviewed then-Colonel Ty Saiduli when he was still the chair of the History Department at the United States Military Academy at West Point. At that time, he was also the senior editor of the West Point History of Warfare, the first volume and the subject of our first interview being the critically acclaimed West Point History of the Civil War. Since then, he has retired from the United States Army and has gone on to pursue a second career as a public intellectual, a successful author, and a journeyman scholar. A new America fellow, General Saiduli is Professor Emeritus of History at West Point and is currently a Chamberlain Fellow and Visiting Professor of History at Hamilton College. Today, we're talking at some length about his forthcoming book, Robert E. Lee and Me, A Southerner's Reckoning with the Myth of the Lost Cause, to be published by St. Martin's Press later in January 2021. General Saiduli, Welcome back to New Books in Military History. Great to be here, Bob. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you. And I've been looking forward to talking with you ever since I received the copy of, the advanced copy of your book. You're, you're pretty forthcoming at the start in explaining why you wrote this book. And indeed, the entire project is centered around this question and why it is so important. You know, so rather than ask you how you came to this project, I think I prefer to ask why you felt compelled to open up so much of your personal history and emotion to the general public. Yeah, well, I'm a a career military officer, a born Southerner uh, who grew up really revering Lee and revering the Confederates as a child. And I got to West Point and, you know, I sort of changed my opinion uh, of this through the way that we historians do, which is to look at the, the research. And and so I had sort of an epiphany years ago on this, and I was chair of the memorialization uh, uh, committee at West Point for a number of years, and we were creating a new uh, a, a new memorial room to all the graduates who died uh, serving their country, more than 1,500 from the War of 1812 through uh, the, the, the Wars of 9-11. We, we lost 100 grads uh, it killed, in, killed in Afghanistan and Iraq. And so we wanted to put them all in one place, but then the question came, who should go in there? Should Confederates go in there? And I argued to this committee, I mean, to the to the leadership of West Point, that in fact, 
we should exclude Confederates because they fought against their country. They killed U.S. Army soldiers and for the worst possible reason to create a slave republic. And they they abrogated their oath. In fact, the building they were going to go into was created by an anti-Confederate superintendent, George Washington Cullum, who said he wanted no unworthy subjects in his building. So I argued this. And I lost, Bob. I lost completely. Nobody would take me seriously. And in fact, the more I argued and used facts and used empirical evidence to show that, the less successful I became. So I became so frustrated when I remember one senior colonel coming up to me and said, hey, Ty, you're from the South. You went to Washington Lee University. Why do you care so much about this? And I bludgeoned him with the evidence and it made no difference. So I went home and frustratingly told my wife, who much, she's really smart about, about these things. And she said, Ty, you're hiding your background. Nobody knows why this is so important to you. And so that started really the reason. So instead of just using evidence, I used my own personal story as a means of trying to convince people that the Confederates should not be memorialized. And when I started doing that, I would have older men, older white men usually come up to me and whisper in my ear, hey, you know, I believe that too. And that really crystallized for me that the, the way to do this was to be talk about myself openly, and I could convince more people of the facts if I was vulnerable and told them that I too once believed these. Well, it's, it's a very evocative argument. It's very convincing for me. And you know, before we go into more of that, I want to note how early in the book, you know, actually in the introduction, you, know, you make this statement that is extremely evocative. And it defines, I think, not just your own experience, but that of the nation at large. You know, I'm going to quote it. Um, here, here, here's it's a, the citation. I poked the Civil War beast, and it singed me. History is dangerous. It forms our identity, our shared story. If someone challenges a sacred myth, the reaction can be ferocious. And that ends the quote. The notion that, you know, practice and pursuit of historical meaning is not a neutral interaction, but that there is some risk to it. You know, that entire notion imbues the past, I think, with this lingering agency far greater than the sum of our capabilities to perceive it. How did you reach this conclusion? The hard way. Uh, (laughs) What happened is in in 2015, I did a uh, video for PragerU. Uh, in fact, much, it was the last time I talked to you, I was trying to promote the book that we did on the Civil War. Proud of that book. And they, I did a bunch of interviews for it. And uh, uh, the publisher said, hey, listen, this, this group wants you to, to do a video, about five minutes, less than 800 words on the cause of the Civil War. And I said, sure, I'll do that. I didn't really think that much about it. And so I wrote it up. And you know, I'd already been thinking about these issues. And so I did it. And I was very clear in saying, Citizens of the Southern states fought the war to preserve slavery, and many people don't want to believe that. Uh, and then I, and, and so I, right up front, said, I mean, as you can see within the book, I'm sort of punch people in the nose with my argument, particularly mm-hmm. white Southerners or white Americans. And so I, I punched this this the Civil War beast, and I had no idea what would happen. So I, I wrote it and recorded it maybe in January of 2015, and then it took them eight months to to, to produce it. And it came out maybe in early August of 2015, right after the Charleston massacre, uh, where white supremacists uh. uh, slaughtered people in um, in the in the church in Charleston, South Carolina. And all of a sudden, it went viral. I did it in my blue uniform, 
And I ended, because I did in my blue uniform, all of a sudden it, it went viral and I got I got hate mail. Stars and Stripes wrote something saying that I was too close to a conservative group because Prager is very conservative. Uh, the Nation wrote that I had uh, that I was a propagandist for the army, and the army investigated me. I thought for a while there I would lose my job because I said the Civil War is about slavery because they investigated me. Was it political speech? And then I received these hundreds and hundreds of emails because I had a public email address from my fellow American citizens, two of which were actual death threats with the most vile language. And I'm a soldier. I understand how to curse. I mean, we know that. But but these were just vicious, awful. And so I passed them on to the Criminal Investigation Division at West Point, who passed them on to the FBI. So I saw that history is dangerous. And when you go after people's myths and their identity, they react ferociously. Because remember, their history is part of our identity. And I think it was David Blight, uh, the great Civil War uh, memory historian, who said that the, the, the Civil War is a sleeping dragon. And if you go after it long enough, it will raise up and, and burn us with unbearable fire. And that's what I did. I poked the Civil War beast and it singed me. So I know it's dangerous. And uh, But you know what? That's why I feel compelled to tell this story and to just tell it through my own lens, because I think I can convince more people that. You know, you also state in the introduction that the history of the American Civil War really is the history of white supremacy. And it's such a basic truism, but it's also one that eludes so many white Americans. You know, I have to ask if, you know, perhaps by focusing so much of our narrative of the conflict on battle and campaign, whether or not we're feeding this larger construct. The answer is not only is it yes, but it was designed that way. That's what the Southern Historical Society did, led by Jubal Early, Lee's bad old man, a really, really awful person. Uh, and, and that's what we grew up. That's what I grew up believing. And so, yes, absolutely. But it wasn't just it wasn't just done that way by happenstance. It was done on purpose, because if you look only at the tactical part, you take out the purpose of the war. And that's what I did over and over again. Teaching initially at West Point, even growing up, going to staff rides, which the Army does all the time. We would go to Antietam and Gettysburg. We would never. And, and I, I'd say this a couple of times in the book. The smell of gunpowder seduced me. So I would be so enthralled with the operational and tactical aspects of the war that I forgot why it was being fought. And, you know, Ulysses S. Grant never forgot why it was being fought. Abraham Lincoln never forgot why it was being fought. But after the war, Confederates and white Southerners actively work to have us forget what this was purpose of this war was about so that we would focus only on brother against brother. But it's a lie, and it's a lie to enforce white supremacy. You know, another point, too, I remember reading your first chapter, and you, know, you described your childhood encounters with the Lee myth and, and this lost cause ideology. And I kept thinking back, believe it or not, to, you know, there's this one anecdote that Shelby Foote shared during his Ken Burns uh, Civil War documentary series appearances. You know how every Southern boy, and obviously every Southern white boy, at some point in his youth can imagine they were in the woods along Seminary Ridge, you know, waiting for the order to start marching across the open field toward the high water mark. Now, now I confess, it's really a trite observation, but I was a kid who was born in Bluefield, West Virginia, you know, I'm from the lower Shenandoah Valley. I grew up, even though 
we moved to New Jersey in 1969, I was steeped in the lost cause as a young kid as part of our family lore. And I, I confess, you know, as a kid, I did kind of have that moment. I guess the question is, what is we what is so alluring and intoxicating for young men growing up in the South or in Southern culture about the lost cause? Now, it's not I, just a matter of racial exceptionalism, is it? Well, I think well, the two first of all, I think that Shelby Foote is actually quoting there Faulkner. Mm-hmm. So that's a Faulkner uh-huh. quote. Okay. And which, which I think is, is, uh, to, I mean, if, if anybody understood Southern identity and, and, you know, a certain view of race in the South, it was Faulkner, uh, Mississippian. Um, so, you know, the, the, why is the lost cause? It was, it was everywhere. And, and so it, there's no way to separate the idea of looking and, and, and being, uh, they, honoring the Confederates, in my opinion, in my view, from white supremacy. It's impossible to separate the two because they were created to support one another. And so if you, if we grew, and we grew up that way, I grew up that way. That's what I, I mentioned in the first chapter of the book and all throughout the book, I grew up this way, but it was a form of white supremacy. Uh, and, and if we, if we honestly look at that and it's not going to kill us to do this, it makes us uncomfortable. But uncomfortable won't kill us. But but the idea of, of, of the lost cause, which is Lee is the greatest human that ever lived. The war was not fought about slavery. Slaves were happy in their condition. Um, the, the, the North won only because of superior manpower and uh, materiel. Um, and the Confederate soldier could whip, you know, 12 to 1 uh, over, the, over, the, over the U.S. And then there's this idea of the honorable loser. But we have to to, to, to tear apart those myths and find out what's underlying it. And what's underlying it is looking for racial control, social control, racial control through white supremacy. Starting even when you were a young child. And Especially when I was a young child. For me, you know, I, my first book was Meet Robert E. Lee. And Lee is the great hero with his Confederate flag in the background. Uh, my cha- my, the books that I, uh, the, the textbooks I had as a child in Virginia all supported this notion because remember for me uh, I was born in Virginia uh, in the very in the early 60s and Virginia was a racial police state and the south was a racial police state it was an apartheid system uh, to ensure that a in some cases a minority in some cases not a minority South Carolina and Mississippi were kept under control so that whites could have political power and if you see the lost cause myth as a political as a way of enforcing political power, the same way that lynching did, the same way the Confederate monuments did, then it, it makes sense of why you would need an ideology uh, to undergird this system of apartheid. Right. Well, you know, you say you grew up in Robert E. Lee's hometown. You grew up in Alexandria, Virginia, which was a different place, you know, in the 1960s than it is today, assuredly. Um, how did Lee's mythology shape the structure? Of life and governance at Alexandria. Yes, well, I, I was born at uh, and, and and when I was born in Alexandria, two miles from his home, from Lee's boyhood home, and I also uh, my dad was a, a high school history teacher and coach at Episcopal High School, which was mm-hmm. a lost cause denominational school, no doubt about it. I mean, they had all the boys in gray that died in the war there. It was uh, uh, led by either the the Confederate veterans or their sons of Confederate veterans, grandsons of Confederate veterans. Lee's 
a progeny went there. I remember them. Oh, yeah, that guy, he's direct descendant of Robert E. Lee. So the idea of being a Southern gentleman was omnipresent. And certainly what I wanted to be was a Southern gentleman, an educated Southern gentleman. And that was sort of the mythos of the school. And Alexandria had the same thing. So uh, there are more things named after Confederates in Alexandria than any other city in Virginia, twice as much as Richmond. And the reason for that is is in the early 60s, maybe late 50s, early 60s, they started naming streets after Confederates if they moved, if they went north-south. And again, this is the time when they're fighting against integration. So if mm-hmm. you scratch a monument uh, that came up before World War II, those are often to support white supremacy and ensure um, disenfranchisement of black people. If you do it after World War II, they're often a way of protesting against integration and equal rights. Same thing, just said a little bit differently. And Alexandria led the league in that. It was the last outpost of the conservative bird machine. That was the bird who, Harry Bird, who ran Virginia uh, in the Democratic Party in Virginia as a white supremacist person. They, they started massive resistance there. And I was bust while I was in, in, in elementary school from the white elementary school, Douglas MacArthur, to the segregated, nearly all black elementary school. And what was the name of that segregated black school? Robert E. Lee Elementary School. Hmm. I was happy to go there because of it was my hero. So Alexandria at the time, again, has changed since then, but but some of it's changed, some of it hasn't. It's still a very segregated town. Um, and they still have many things named after Confederates uh, that, that remain there. They finally got rid of the statue to the Confederate um, that was downtown Alexandria. But yeah, it's, it's and, and remember the other thing about Alexandria is it was only spent about 12 hours in the Confederacy before it was occupied by the U.S. So it, it would, the, the whole city then turned to meet its new home of Virginia, and it wanted to make sure that even though it was close to D.C., it was a part of it, a part of Virginia. Let's stick with Lee for a moment, you know, and, and look at the, the mythology that surrounds Robert E. Lee, you know, the, the so-called marble man that is referred to by some historians. How does this mythology differ from the historical record? I mean, clearly, you know, it's, it's not the same. Right. Well, I think there are a couple ways of looking at it. And often we look at, we, we, we base this on the kindly Lee, this gentleman. And again, it's always about the gentleman, which is to me now a, a very problematic uh, concept. But so we think of him, the Lee, the one that's on my Meet Robert E. Lee book, this God, this military God that seems almost on loan from Mount Olympus. You know, he's, he's the one that's constantly got the union on the run and he, everyone loves him, the kindly Lee, they doff his hat to him. And he's this gentleman of the old school, but let's talk. And he and wins these great victories and he's only overcome because of the um, material and manpower of the North. But let's look at him as a slave owner. And he was a cruel uh, enslaver. And in he, he owned slave really from the time he met his wife in 1828 or a correct correction in 18 early 1830s uh, and his mother died and left him uh, several enslaved people who he hired out for his entire entirety of his life really before the civil war which meant he was garnering income from those people and by the time he his only will was right before the Mexican war he was what we would consider today a millionaire making almost nothing as a lieutenant in the army mm-hmm. so he gained his his revenue from that then he then he made money the old fashioned way he married it uh, and then that came with 200 in, enslaved people at the three plantations that his father-in-law, George Washington Park Custis, had, the adopted grandson of George Washington. 
And when he died, when Custis died in 1857, Lee had two years, more than two years of paid administrative leave. The only person in the antebellum army to get this, where he worked those plantations and managed them for two and a half years. And I think that he became more of a, of a slave owner, plantation owner than he did an army officer by the time the Civil War started. And his father-in-law kept all the families together. Not Lee. Lee broke them all apart, sold them to ma- to get the maximum amount of money. He also, we have clear evidence that he whipped or had, had whipped several slaves. And then the final thing I would say that is different than that we think about Lee is his decision to fight against the United States. And I don't like to use the term union. It makes it seem like it's an army that fought one war. It was the United right. States of America that wore a blue uniform, just like the blue uniform I wore for my career. And Lee, there were eight U.S. Army colonels before Virginia seceded on the 23rd of May, 1861. Eight U.S. Army colonels from Virginia, all West Point graduates. Seven of them remain with the United States. And one and only one leave to go fight for the Confederacy. And the reason I argue is clear is because of his absolute belief in in social control through slavery. In the 1970s, you moved to Monroe, Georgia, where you attended high school. Now, this is deep, deep South, clearly. And, you know, you would expect the Lost Cause narrative to be thriving there. But you saw a completely different or rather perhaps more rabid or more virulent version of that narrative there, didn't you? So when I went to, my dad took a job, his first headmaster's job in Monroe, Georgia, is about 40 miles east of Atlanta in, in Walton County. And uh, it was it was a different place than, than Alexandria. It was, just a, it was more rural. It was deeper south. And it was also a segregation academy. So by that, in, in 1969, when uh, finally the South was forced to integrate its schools, and it, it had fought that for 15 years, but it was finally forced to integrate schools, uh, throughout Georgia particularly, there were 400 schools that popped up in, between 1968 and 1971 uh, to... Get, make sure that that white kids didn't have to go to school with black kids. And I went to one of those high one of those schools for for high school. And you know, it, we had 19 people in my graduating class, not one black person. And I didn't uh, compete against them playing football and basketball. I didn't see or talk to a black person, even though Monroe was 50 percent African American and Walden County 30 percent. And also, what I didn't realize was the the history of that town. And as I and I didn't know it even graduating there. So what I tried to do with that town was talk about another aspect of white supremacy, uh, uh, which is lynching and violence to control African-Americans. And that town had a really ugly history of violence that I knew nothing about living there. And, and Monroe was the site of the last mass lynching in American history, the Moore's Ford lynching. Yeah. I'm sorry, what, was it a sundown town? I think it was. You know, it, it, when I was living there, it wasn't. But the but the but the because because we, I was really in the integration period. But yeah, there was there were there were so many rules that were there previous to me, and I probably could have written a whole book just on Monroe, just on any one of these towns. I chose to focus on on the lynching in Monroe because it was a way to get at the violent aspect of the lost cause myth that you can't separate the violence perpetrated by white people against black people in the South from this lost cause. Uh, lineage. How did you reconcile with that? I mean, at the time, I, I understand how you did later. I mean, you, you write about that. But being an 18-year-old 
male growing up in in that kind of privileged environment. Were you even aware of this then? No, I really wasn't. Because the thing about the, the, the what we had there is I never saw a black person. I just, I just, I mean, the only time I did, I, I worked at a, a summer job as a, uh, in an egg processing factory. And there I got to interact with a diverse group of, of black men and black women. But in my normal life, I just never saw anybody. So it was, I, I worked at a, a radio station, all white. I went to a school, all white. I lived across from the country club, all white. So it was a completely segregated experience um, for me. And, and you know, I think that really I wanted to try to, I, I didn't come to grips with it as an 18-year-old. I just didn't do it. And that's really why I wanted to, to, to explore that part of it, because I just didn't understand why my experience was so segregated in Monroe, Georgia. And I really had to look at the violence that was perpetrated there for me to get an understanding of it. You went on to Washington and Lee University, um, not surprisingly, I think, given your, your, your life's path to this point. How, how enmeshed was the lost cause with the institution? We could presume it is because of the name, but it's pretty significant, isn't it? Oh, my gosh. It's inseparable. It's in the DNA. I mean, it's General Lee's College. And, you know, when we, fir- when we first got, I mean, I went there to be an educated Christian gentleman. That was one. Of, I mean, I wanted to be like my heroes, Washington and Lee, the two finest gentlemen in the, in the history of the country. And they were both right there on the nameplate. So, yeah, that, that myth of, of Lee was, was on the present in my life. And I, and I took it to say, oh, if I want to be an educated Christian gentleman, what's the best way for me to do it is to go to Washington and Lee University. And it's a fine school. It's a fine school. But it's the allure uh, was was Lee, and if, as we first as we went there, when I first the first thing was to, about the honor system, which I thought Lee had created, he didn't. It predated him. But we would go into the chapel, and as we went into the chapel in this solemn thing, uh, you know, I remember one one young man sitting next to a plaque that said, "This is where General Lee sat during church services," and he's the one that created the Lee Chapel which is where we went in and had all of our major ceremonies. And then as I went in, I looked at the apse of the church, the sanctuary, and the sanct. And I, I was raised Episcopalian, so I knew my way around the church. I was a head acolyte. So I, I looked at, and what is in the apse, the sanctuary, the holiest part, there's a slab of marble. And who's lying on the marble? The altar is Robert E. Lee, the recumbent Lee, as in repose on the battlefield. In his Confederate uniform, there's a portrait of Lee in Confederate gray, um, stage left, and a picture of Washington stage right. So it, this is, it was absolutely, and everything that happened at, at, at WNL, at Washington Lee, was revolved around what would Lee have done? And so it was, it was absolutely on the present. It was in the DNA of that school, and in many ways still is. Not what Washington would have done, but what Lee would have done. That's, that's not what Washington would have done. Statement. That's exactly right. And and you know Lee. Uh, so yeah, th- this is it was a that that I think that Lee Chapel is really emblematic of that. And outside was the remains of Traveler, his horse, and you would you know you could put a penny on it and go down. You know, the, always heads down, never want to show Lincoln's head to Lee. Uh, and then you would go inside where he's buried, and there says General Robert e. Edward Lee. His office was still there, untouched, in a hundred and uh, some years. Uh, it was right there, you know, there. His untouched. All the papers were still there the day he died. VMI, the Virginia Military Institute cadets, would go by Lee Chapel and salute it as they walked by. And 
you know, I later received, as I, I took an ROTC scholarship, and when I received my commission, I, and I saw the picture of me, um, I hear, I, I'm bald now, I have hair then, uh, I'm at the position of attention, you know, I'm about to get my commission, and I'm standing right next to a portrait of Robert E. Lee and Gray. And then I go and I, I receive my commission from some colonel general, I don't remember, and I am surrounded by Confederate flags, enemy flags. And what I found out of doing my research is when we raise our right hand, anybody in the federal government, senators, congressmen, everybody except the president, his oath comes from the Constitution. But officer's oath is set, is an 1862 document, which is an anti-Confederate oath. When it says all enemies foreign and domestic, it's about Confederates. When it says I have no purpose of evasion, it's making sure you're not a Confederate. So I took an anti-Confederate oath surrounded by Confederate flags next to my hero at the time, Robert E. Lee. You, you also describe in the chapter about your college years this visit to the institution by Charles Francis Adams, Jr. in 1907, where he delivers a keynote address for the centennial of Lee's birth. And, you know, to a degree, given the general trend towards reconciliation between North and South that was sought at the turn of the 20th century, I mean, it, it kind of makes sense. I'm not surprised that Adams, who is part of a prestigious anti-slavery family line and who served through the duration of the Civil War, would accept the invitation. But what's most stunning is what Adams does there. You know, this man who's a former commander of the 5th Massachusetts Colored Cavalry Regiment, he speaks of Reconstruction as a mistake. What does this tell us, not only about Adams, but the general spirit in the United States toward the Civil War, not even 50 years after it occurred? Yeah, I think, and that's really, you hit the nail on the head. That's really what I was using Adams and the and Lee Chapel for, is to show this change over time of how accepted the lost cause myth becomes. And by 1907, the centennial of Lee's birth, he is absolutely accepted nationwide as the exemplar of American spirit the exemplar of American citizenship. And Adams comes to West Point to give the speech. And when he does that, I mean, he says Lee did the right thing. And Reconstruction was an evil because it gave Black Americans the right to vote. It gave them equality. And that is something that they should not have. And he mentions Darwin of saying that this is a lower class race. I mean, it's, it's so racist. So the racism is so much greater in 1907 than it was in 1867. It's, it's just amazing how accepted this all is. And, and Adams is a, absolutely saying that the South should not give the franchise to Black people, should not give equality to Black people, and that Reconstruction was a singular failure because the North forced the South to give equal rights to Black people. And remember, 2000 Black men served in elected positions during Reconstruction. It's the start of education in the South. It is the, with the 13th Amendment ending slavery, the 14th Amendment equal protection under the law, the 15th Amendment, the right to vote. It creates citizenship. It is the second founding of America. And I'm so proud of that now as an American. But they completely changed the meaning of Reconstruction to make it this failure. And that's what I grew up with, that Reconstruction was awful. And Adams did that as just as you said, as being the scion of a of the Northern family of commanding black troops. He completely changed his tune, and he is emblematic of the. Remember, nineteen oh six seven that era, 
race riots in, in Atlanta, huge race massacre there. All the Confederate statues were going up. You see the ideology of white supremacy has won. And it's you can see it there in one time in 1907 with Adams Talk in Lee Chapel. Well, it shows also it's not only one across the South, which is the target audience, but through the narratives constructed by historians at the time, you know, and through the 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 general spread of this ideology, this mythology, it's one in the North too. It, it's completely one in the North, and the Dunning School, which is the reconstruction that comes out of Columbia. Uh, university absolutely says the same thing of Reconstruction being a failure. And this is the time when you you get the Klansman, the book, The Klansman, and then uh, the movie, the 1915 movie, uh, Birth of a Nation, which and then you have uh, Woodrow Wilson, who resegregates the federal workforce, who is our first Southern president and a terrible racist. So it is and, and it's the height of lynching in America, too. So it is a very it's a terrible point in American history. But it relooks. It uses the Reconstruction to 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 say this is why we have to have white supremacy now, and it subverts it subverts history, and that's why history is dangerous because we go back to it to to satisfy our demands for what we want to do. And racism goes from sea to shining sea. There's no place in America that doesn't have it. I think my story just if anybody were to do their own narrative of where they've lived in their life, they could find the same elements. Maybe mine is more egregious, but they could find the same elements of racism in their own life. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's something all of us, I myself confronted it. And perhaps I'm still confronting it, actually, to be honest. I think that's the right answer because we do all have to keep confronting it. And this isn't something that just ends. In fact, I was hearing this somebody recently said, if America doesn't actively work against racism, its natural propensity is to go, go toward racism. It just, that's its sort of normal resting spot. And we have to actually try our best to, to stop racism because it, it, it is so ingrained in all aspects of American society. Yeah, it's really the original sin. It, it is the original public. sin and it is, it is, it is throughout, and that's, it is, it's throughout our country. And, um, and as I did this sort of memoir, Mia Culpa, uh, I found that everywhere I lived and, you know, it ticks me off that I bought so many of these lies for so long. And that's why I want to to show people um, that that it, its effect is terrible and it's long lasting and it's still there. Well, yeah, you weigh in on the subject again when you discuss naming basis, you know, the, the naming and nomenclature that's used for existing and former United States Army bases, posts, and facilities. Can you enlighten or can you share that uh, with our listeners, your views on yeah, that? Absolutely. So, you know, I, I my first duty station was at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, named after Braxton Bragg, a, uh, a really- Towering intellect, to be sure. Towering intellect. Towering intellect. That's right. Uh, and he, he was a terrible general. And uh, Leonidas Polk, Fort Polk, Louisiana, terrible. I mean- the, the best thing he ever did was to catch a cannonball in the chest, which nearly cleaved him in two and die a glorious battlefield death. That helped the Confederacy more than anything he did on the battlefield. So we, and, and Henry Benning, which is our, one of our most prestigious bases, was a brigade commander in the Confederacy, never wore uh, uh, army blue his entire life. John Brown Gordon, Fort Gordon is named after, were home of cyber and signal. Uh, he was a, a great battlefield general, 
but he also started the KKK in Georgia and fought for white supremacy his whole life. In fact, he gave a speech to to the black people of Charleston, South Carolina, and said, hey, listen, yeah, I fought for slavery. We bought you. We got to keep you. And by the way, if you ever demand equality, there are 40 million of us and 3 million of you. I promise you a race war and we will exterminate you. And, and so we named these people after this sorry lot of middling tacticians, white supremacists, violent segregationists, uh, uh, and, um, and just terrible people. And why do we do that? So we, we, there are 10 of these bases uh, that we've named after. And then there's another one, Fort Belvoir, named after a slave plantation. But the 10 were named during World War I and World War II. And Black people protested them, but they had no vote. Remember, this was a time of it's a racial police state in the South. And segregationist congressmen and senators have been in power for so long because it is a one-party state. And the army, which named these, is also a white supremacist organization. Uh, Pershing during World War I gives, gets rid of an entire black division in France, gives it to the French, the only division, because he didn't want any black soldiers. Uh, in fact, and he says, don't talk to them, don't give, you, don't give them any awards, don't do anything that would make them think that they're equal to us. So the army is like that, society's like that, and, and the army wants to, wants to bring white America together at the expense of black America. And so they name these posts to assuage Southerners and also because there are many Southerners in the army itself. So half of them are named during World War I. And this would this will surprise most people. They weren't rent named in the 19th century. In fact, most army officers, uh, U.S. Army officers, thought the Confederates were traitors for many years. It's only after the, in the 20th century that we begin to honor in the army and at West Point to honor them. And so some of them are named in World War One, some of them are named in World War Two. And in fact, in World War Two, we had one of our biggest bases, luckily closed down in 1946, was named Fort Nathan Bedford Forrest after the founder of the KKK, the wizard of the saddle, the great quote unquote hero of white Southern Tennesseans and who slaughtered black troops at POWs at the, at Fort Pillow. And it's, it's our, it was our largest base in, in, in Tennessee, one of the largest bases in the country, 250,000 troops go through there. So we named them during those two periods as a part of the lost cause mythology. And as also as a sign of the white supremacist organization that the army is and that reflects America. So the army is completely segregated during this period and will not allow black officers to command white troops of any type. There are only two black officers when America goes to war in 1940, Benjamin O. Davis Sr. and Benjamin O. Davis Jr. And Mm -hmm. we often let the army, give the army and the military a pass and don't talk about how segregated and how, how racist the, our military was for so many years. You know, there's also the issue of monuments and statues, you know, that commemorate the lost cause and the Confederacy. And the historical record on this is very clear now. I mean, it, it being, and we've spoken about this already, you know, it's part of the post-Reconstruction backlash against African-Americans. It's part of the rise of Jim Crow across the South. It's an action against integration and the civil rights movement. And, you know, we're now seeing these public installations, all of them erected in homage to white supremacy, being rightly removed or failing that interpreted. But I want to ask you, you know, what should be done about such memorials on federal grounds at places like Gettysburg or at the United States Military Academy at West Point? 
Yeah, I think the first one that has to go, the worst, the most egregious uh, monument that I know of is at on holy ground. It's at Arlington National Cemetery. And it was put up in 1913, 14, somewhere like that, uh, by Moses Ezekiel, who was a VMI grad, Southerner. And it is it has a representation of a, quote unquote, mammy. This is an overweight African-American woman who is supporting, who's about to take a baby from her white master as he goes off to war. She's got a tear in her eye and she sends her master off to war. And it's meant to show, and he says this, it's meant to show that, sl- that, that slavery was good for the enslaved, that bondage was the best thing possible for black Americans. And it, it also has this Roman phrase that, that really meant, uh, it, was, it was from Cato talking about the, the Republicans who lost to Caesar in the Roman in Roman history. And what it really means is it's 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 a it's a middle finger to the United States of America saying we lost, but we were in the right. And you may have won, but we'll always be right, the Confederates, and you'll always be wrong. And that is on the most holy ground to me in in, in America. And that has to be taken down. It, it's just too it's racist and awful. Um, at, at, at West Point, we have a number of things named after Robert E. Lee, who was superintendent there in the 1850s. And by the way, Lee brought his enslaved servants to West Point while he was superintendent, even though it was against New York law to do so. And the things that were named after Lee started in reaction to bringing black cadets there in the late 1920s, early 1930s. So that's when we accept gifts from from the United Daughters of the Confederacy, a math prize, a portrait, it's also when we uh, put a portrait in our superintendent's home and we put names of streets as well. And then we have another series that come in the 1950s when the army starts integrating more Robert E. Lee. Another one that comes in 1970, again, in reaction to more black cadets coming and in the with minority admissions. We actually have uh, monuments at, at West Point from 2001-2002 to Lee. So this, the lost cause is thoroughly integrated and meshed in West Point and in the Army, and it, it's going to require real work for us to get that out. And, it, and that's what I have been working for. It's really the purpose of this book is to help the Army and our modern nation understand why we put these monuments up and why we must take them down. Well, I mean, turning back to the question of Gettysburg, I mean, this is, of course, you know, it's obviously going to be a very contentious subject to approach there. And, you know, these are, are cases where the statues reflect the actual historical events that take place there. But should they be looked at in just that one monotone perspective? Because when were the statues put up? What were they speaking towards at the same time? You're the historian. You've got it exactly right. There is no, I'm not saying there is not one size fits all for each one. And I certainly don't. And in my book, I don't say that all of them must come down. I do say that local communities have to understand the context, which is what you're saying. What's the context for it going up? And if you look at that context, you may be able to understand it. So, you know, the one, the most egregious one uh, on one of the battlefields is the Stonewall Jackson at Bull Run. I mean, if you've seen that one, he looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger. I mean, he's got these mat and little sorrel. His horse is also just jacked. They're steroidal in their heroism. Uh, and so, you, you know, those have to be looked at more carefully. 
of what to do. But I don't think there's a one size fits all prescription for this. But those that support this idea of the lost cause, those have something must be done. You know, well, the way Hungary did it is they moved all of their statuary of Lenin, Marx and Engels and Stalin to a single location out in the outskirts of Budapest uh, so that you almost go there and all of them are in one spot. So I'm not saying that I have the answer for every one of them. I certainly don't. And the National Park Service is starting to do a really, for years they did not, but they now are doing great work of trying to recontextualize these monuments. And I think that's a, that's the answer in those cases, certainly is recontextualization. Uh, you know, recognizing the dual purpose of these memorials. Well, you know, let me ask you as a historian to a historian, what do we do to address this? Yeah, I, that's a great question. What do the historians do? Well, I, I'm trying my part. So I think it is to continue to engage the public. If you think about what what harm historians did up until the 1950s, we do have some explaining to do. What the Dunning School did and what so many historians did really into, into this century. But historians have been doing great work, um, whether it's McPherson or um, the, the ones who have been doing stuff on, on the lost cause, on the history of slavery. I mean, there has been an enormous amount and it's taken 50 years, but I can start to see the change that occurs when historians continue to look at white supremacy and slavery and the Confederacy from a myriad of different angles. And that's what I've loved is in this project, because one of the reasons why I did this book is I wanted to understand why I felt this way. Why did I grow up this way? And why is it that so many people still love these monuments? And what I came to was that the Civil War remains a dragon. And if you poke it, it's people's identity and they will rise up. So it takes education. And it doesn't just take education at the college level. We must, like you do, engage with the public. And that is a variety of different mechanisms for it, whether it's small videos, it's op-eds. Um, it's, it, and I'll tell you, the other thing is that schools, schools particularly in Virginia, are doing wonderful work in changing the way we're doing history. So the terrible textbooks I had in the 60s and 70s, which said that slavery was a positive good, that actually had a picture, I, I kid you not, of a in, of a, a ship, like an early 18th, 19th century ship. And on board, there was this white guy with colonial attire shaking hands with a man, and his four kids were there. And the man's wife looked like, it's like, oh my gosh, finally this person's going to take take care of us. It was a family coming and they were all dressed in their finest Sunday attire coming from Africa. It was the middle passage and it looked like a princess cruise ship. That's what, that's what my view of slavery was as a kid was that it was the best thing gone with the wind did the same thing. So what, what we have to do is make sure that, that we are telling the truth, giving the facts and making it available to as many people as possible and engaging the public and realizing that's where it starts so that, they don't have the same terrible education that I had. And we start this early and we do it often and we engage the public. Yeah, you mentioned Gone with the Wind and it gets me thinking as well, which is more powerful in some cases? Is it the historical narrative, the legitimate historical narrative, or is it the pop cultural narrative that, you know, imbues you know, the lost cause with such strength and power? You know, like I can look back to films like Gods and Generals, for example, with that absolutely horrific portrayal of Stonewall Jackson that so many people bought, bought into. 
I think it was uh, uh, Gore Vidal that said, he who screens the history aches the history. Uh, And I think that's true. But, you know, I think we're also changing in that, whether it's 12 Years a Slave or um, popular entertainment is looking at the horrors of slavery and realizing what it really was. And that has been a huge change uh, from when I was growing up. So I'm, I am in a way, I'm, ho- I'm hopeful that, that we are changing the narrative finally, and we can change the narrative. There's no reason we can't do this as a country and as a, as a people. But it also means the reason we have to go so deep and to start with education is every time that there is a change in the way we view these things, there is a counter revolution to that. There is a, a change that comes from the change, a reaction to that, uh, and uh, particularly led by white people. And so we have to make sure that we are c- telling the, this, the facts, the evidence, so that there isn't a counter revolution to this that, that we're having now. So that the, whether it's Black Lives Matter or whether it's change in, in monument structure, that there's not some reaction to that. And that's why the education that historians do is so vital. So I'm, I think we're, paying, we're doing great work on this. And we have to continue to engage the public in whatever means that is, whether that's visiting battlefields or whether that's writing op-eds or helping. Uh, really, I think the, the K through 12 is doing amazing work on this and showing the primary sources, which is another great thing that the that the, the Internet has given us. Everyone wow. can read those secession documents now. And it, there's no way you can read those things and, and have the same opinion about the Civil War. To me, if you've read all those, the state's the reasons for the states seceding from the union. Well, you know, you anticipated, you know, my closing question or one of my closing questions, which is, you know, we look at how the narrative is changing and how culturally we're reshaping the memory of the civil war and what it means to all of us and how black lives matter and other movements are championing an end to this racist legacy but there's also, as you know, the, the, a backlash or a counter response by groups in American society who are completely vested or feel completely invested in the lost cause narrative and you know, who have expressed in their words and even their actions a willingness to fight to preserve these narratives. Has American society, you know, perhaps fallen victim to the same type of divisive rhetoric and political philosophies that have created the civil war, you know, in the first place. And, you know, how do we, how do we step back from that abyss? Yeah. I I don't think that we're at a civil war stage because there isn't anything that separates us like slavery separated us. I mean, we had two different societies based on one society living around the social system of slavery and another not. Now, we do have racism from sea to shining sea, and whether it's housing ordinances or former the VA loan program or FHA loan program or Social Security, which was racist for so long, we have these legacy systems that ensured that we had a segregationist policy in this country. It's still there. I mean, really, it's still there. So I, I and, and we must acknowledge what that has done to us. And the way that to, I think the, the best thing is, is evidence, evidence, evidence is that you take people's uh, when they get. And that's why I use my own story, because if I can do it, 
And, you know, I'm no, I'm not special. If I can do it and look at my own past and say, what I grew up with was wrong, it was racist, you can too. We can do this together. And I, I believe in this country, I spent, you know, nearly four decades in uh, defending it. And, and I, my, you know, I, I, I run into people that tell me, you know, I'm too, uh, even though I say all this horrible stuff about the, what we have done, that I, that I do have hope for, for us. And I have hope because if we can, if we can at least use the facts about the Civil War, and the facts are 11 states seceded um, uh, and overturned a democratic election to protect a, a social system of slavery, and, and we're willing to fight and die to protect that. If we just start with that, we can go on and build on that to understand why we are like we are. And history is about understanding who we are. Now, I don't know that I, we can't, as historians, fix all of society. But if we can get the American people to have a better understanding of why we are like we are, that's not a small thing. Well, you know, we're closing up on this interview. And if you recall, I do like to ask all of our guests, where do they go from here themselves? I mean, what's next on their writing or research agenda? Well, you know, I, I have been thinking about this uh, quite a bit because I, I, I really enjoyed this process of, of writing this. But it was an unusual book in that it wasn't just a normal history book. It was a memoir as well as history. So I'm I'm still still hunting, and I've uh, I've got a couple ideas, but I haven't I haven't settled on one of them yet. Um, in the meantime, what I hope to do is to continue to use the platform uh, that I have with this book, and uh, to continue to help. Help is too strong a word. Really, I just want to tell the stories that I have to help our help our nation that I love so much garner a better understanding of itself as it tries to change for the better and that it won't change for the worse. Because as we both know, things could get way worse. They don't have to get better. It takes decisions and leaders to make things better because we can easily make things worse. There's no, there's no grand design that we have to get better. And as historians, we know that there's no Whiggish version of the future. So in the meantime, I'm going to teach my classes and write my op-eds and talk about this story to as many people as I can. I'm glad to hear that. General Seduli, thank you for joining us. Oh, Bob, thank you. What, what a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much oh, for having me. Very much so. And, and on behalf of New Books in Military History and the New Books Network, this is your host, Bob Winterbute. Thank you for listening.